Amen. Well, good morning, Redeemer. If you have a Bible, we're in the, well, we're not quite yet to the end of the David and Bathsheba incident, but this will be the last thing we have to say about it until September. Uh, After this, I'll be doing a series on covenant theology for the summertime, and then there'll be about four weeks where actually we have guest preachers. Uh, where I will not be here. Um, and then, yeah, we'll come back to Second Samuel in the late summer, early fall time. But for now, we'll be looking at Second Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. Before we do that, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of your prophet Nathan. We thank you, Lord, for his boldness. We thank you, Lord, for his love of your law and obedience, his love for you. We pray, Lord, as we open the word today, that we would learn to imitate him, uh, not only um, in speaking or preaching the gospel to ourselves, but in our everyday Christian speech. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness to us, and we pray that you would be with us now by your Holy Spirit and give us insight and understanding into these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, we are a church that, that goes, you know, uh, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. That, that is a um, conviction that we have had for many years. But what happens over time is sometimes there are certain subjects, especially in, in, in individual local churches, you, send, you tend to emphasize certain things. Um, and, and one thread that we have been looking at ever since I took over four years ago today, I might add, uh, is the, yeah, I know, I feel really old, um, is the prophetic voice. I've said a lot about the prophetic voice. Now, my reason, I've never really explained why. It's a really big deal in the Series C to talk about the prophetic, prophetic voice, speaking to the culture. And, and what I am, am, have noticed is that we don't really know what that means. Right? People use this phrase, and they're not really sure what they mean by that. Um, and so I've been talking about the prophetic voice ever since I first began in the Gospel of Mark when I started four years ago. And this sermon has a lot to do with that. How do you actually sit down in in Starbucks with a friend and use the prophetic voice in a way that builds them up in Christ? Um, We've said a great deal about it. Hopefully after today, it's easier. It's easier to talk to your five-year-old with a prophetic voice. It's easier to talk to your spouse with a prophetic voice. Now, we know that the scriptures do not contain all knowledge. Uh, if I want to fix my uh, beautiful 1999 uh, Civic, I cannot open to the book of Ecclesiastes and, and figure out how to figure, you know, figure out what's wrong with the starter. Uh, it, the Bible doesn't work that way. Uh, the Bible, though, right, tells me how I ought to use that automobile. That automobile is not a device for my own pleasure. It's not something that I use to murder people with, right, just drive on the sidewalk, drive any which way I want. It tells me how to use the car. Right? Not, not how to functionally fix the car. So the scriptures are full of, of knowledge that helps us govern this world. That's what, that's what it does. It doesn't have all the knowledge. You can't build a cabinet. You can't do heart surgery. You can't fi- fix your civic with it. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, it says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, this verse alone, um, there's a great deal in it. He does not say for every minister. He does not say for every uh, professional ministry worker. He says that the man of God, 
Okay, the man of God teaches and reproofs and corrects and trains in righteousness. That's you guys. You are supposed to be doing these things. But how is one to use scripture to reprove and teach and correct and train children, to train ourselves, to train one another? How do you do that? The Bible is full of very strange things. Leave right marriage, for example. What is it? How do you apply that in our, in our modern context? The dimensions of the tabernacle are given in cubits. Now, I can never remember how big a cubit is. I don't know if I necessarily should. But what is a cubit, and why does the scriptures give us the dimensions of the tabernacle in cubits? And what does that have to do with your marriage? What does that have to do with a friend whose knees aren't working like they used to? Now, how do you communicate the Bible to people profitably? What, is, is only some of it applicable? Is all of it applicable? If so, how? Okay, when you open the book of Lamentations or Leviticus or um, Habakkuk or all 150 Psalms, is there something in there that you could apply in your everyday life all the time? Or is it that, you know, some of it is used over occasionally, some of it is used over here in this situation, some of it's used over here in this situation, or, or is the, all of Scripture applicable all the time? It's a good question. When it comes to communicating effectively, there are a few things that we need to understand, and this is where we're going to get extraordinarily meta, as I like to say. We're going to talk about language itself and how it functions. Um, now, th this text that we have before us today, this might seem a little random what I'm doing right now, but I've been using this text to teach preachers and, and rhetoric students for 10 years now. And so now we've come upon it, and I'm not going to suddenly change what I have to say about it. This is a profound passage in which Nathan uses uh, the word of God to effectively bring someone to repentance. Now, who wouldn't like to learn how to do that? Right? We would all like to learn how to do that. You know someone stuck in sin, and you want to restore them. Nathan shows us how to do it. And just because he's a prophet in the Old Testament doesn't mean that he's not teaching us how to do this in our everyday lives. But what we have to understand is what he's doing. What is it that he does? He comes and he actually tells David a lie, a story that's not true, in order to get David to see truth. Now, does that seem contradictory to the scripture on some level? You, you tell a lie in order to get someone to understand the truth. Right? But what, what's a novel? What's a movie? What's a song? Aren't they full of lies? But, but aren't they a way of transmitting truth? Right? It's, you know, something like Schindler's List is based on real events. But if you watch Star Wars, A New Hope, there is nothing factual in that movie whatsoever. And yet it communicates truth, doesn't it? And this is a category that I, I at first was confusing my kids on for many years that I finally figured out how to explain. There is a difference between real and true. Okay, Winnie the Pooh is not real, but it's true. If you want to learn ethics, Pooh is excellent at teaching you ethics. Right? I, once, uh, in, I took a great class in junior college, and it was um, a philosophy according to various things, and one of them was philosophy according to Winnie the Pooh. Uh, also, a philosophy according to The Simpsons. Uh, that one was excellent. Okay? <laughs> so Winnie the Pooh, I would have to tell my three-year-old, there is no Winnie the Pooh anywhere. But it's true. Everything in this is true, and you need to understand the difference between real and true. Santa Claus is not real, but it's true. I don't mind saying that in the pulpit. It's time for your kids to learn. <laughs> now, what we're talking about is logic and poetics. Logic and poetics. 
Now, wh- how, what are those, and how do they work together, and what does that have to do with the prophet Nathan? I'm sorry, Byron, to disappoint you <laughs> about Santa Claus. <laughs> now, logic and poetics, they are the two rails on which communication move. In preaching, for instance, the spirit is the engine pulling the train, the message, on the tracks of logic and poetry. If you don't have logic, the message doesn't make any sense. If you don't have poetics, the the message doesn't make any sense. Logic and poetics are the how and what of communication. Now, poetics here, this is always, I love teenage boys when they use this material. (gasps) We have to write poems? No, that's not what I mean. I don't mean verse. (laughs) That's not what poetics means. Poetics is an older term, meaning something uh, closer to rhetoric. You're you're, you're persuading someone. You're using language in such a way as to get people to think differently about things that they already know about. Now, poetics is the art of beautiful, transformative metaphor, awe-inspiring analogy, allegory, symbolism, parable, non-analytical, intuitive description, that makes comparisons between known and unknowns. Now, that was like a very unpoetic way of explaining it. I'm actually making my point right there. Did anyone understand what I just said? That's like the least poetic way of describing poetics. (laughs) What is poetics? Poetic is how every person thinks. It's actually how your brain works. How every person uses their intellect to interact and engage with the world around them. When confronted with new data, our minds automatically look for patterns using similarities and comparisons working from the known to the unknown. Now, how many ever, like this happens, I have a kitchen cabinet uh, that has uh, Han Solo's face on it. And I see that kitchen cabinet, and I'm like, oh, man, that's Han Solo's face right there. And why? Because my brain looks at this pattern of wood grain that's fake, and what it does is it tries to make sense of what it's seeing. Has this ever happened to you before where you're looking at something and you're like, wow, the way that door is standing and the light passes through it, it looks like Abraham Lincoln's shadow is on the wall. And you're like, what, what is, how did that? And your, your brain is taking in information. And what it wants to do is bring order to it because you're made in the image of God. And so this is, this is how our brains function. It sees new data and it tries to find patterns and similarities and something to compare it to in order for us to understand it. That's what poetics is all about. This is like that. That is how you, that's how you teach people. That's how you understand things. Even when you're understanding something that you've never seen before, heard before, understood before, you're automatically mer- making comparisons, working from knowns to unknowns. This is like that is the best way to communicate data because this is like that is how your brain functions. Poetics, in, in the easiest, simplest terms, is metaphor. It's metaphor. Logic is order. We can't forget that one as we're talking about this because it's very easy to start getting poetical and nobody has any idea what you're talking about. Uh, before I was a Christian, I was, I was a poet, uh, I, and I worked many years on this, and I was hopefully going to be published and read my work on NPR and this kind of thing. I was very into this, and my poor wife knew me at the time, and she would come and listen to my poems, and, I, and I'd ask her what she thought, and she goes, it was so beautiful, and I have no idea what it was about. And, and there was this whole school where we could, you can literally get people to feel emotions, and they have no concept of what you're actually saying. And, and it's all just this emotional manipulation. And, and you find in the modern church, this is what you have a lot of. There's not a lot of logic behind what's being said, but it sure is emotional, right? You get, you get people to react. So you cannot have metaphor without the logic. It's very dangerous business. 
Now, the world is not full of disembodied symbols. There is order and discernible structure to the cosmos in which we live. But what we have to understand is that the physical sciences reveal the structure while the metaphysical sciences explain meaning. Science cannot even explain itself, as C.S. Lewis Lewis says. says. Science cannot explain why it exists. Science just tells you, right? Like, here's an example. What is gravity? What is it? Well, it's clearly a force working on things, okay? But, but if, you, if you actually break it down, it's a mathematical equation that tells you how objects in relationship to one another react. <laughs> Why, though? So, so you, you have a theory of even something as simple as that, and you can't actually explain why. Why this way? Why not another way? Is there another way it can work? Why, why does it do this? You need the metaphysical sciences. You need Plato to come along and try to attempt to answer the question. You need Newton, and you need Calvin, and you need Paul to come along and tell you the meaning behind the physical world. And, and this is what you see in, in, in modern secular society. What they can tell you is all about how it, like what it is, but they can't tell you why it is. And, and, and divorcing the two things, metaphysics from physic, or physical world, separating these two things, what you have is a very confused world that has no meaning, where we have all this information about how things work on the, on the, in, in the deep heavens even, but we don't know why. It doesn't help us understand why. Our world is made up of logic and poetry. It's made up of meaning, and it's made up of symbolism. The Bible is full of both. Think about it, right? Why are we always, right? Jesus says the entire Old Testament is about him. And you go and you're like, well, the, what about the talking donkey? Is that about him? Yes. What about the tabernacle? Is that about him? Yes. What about the fire on top of Mount Sinai? Yes, that's him too. Now, what are those things? What are those things but symbols? Now, our world is also full of these things, this symbolism. A man and woman stand before a minister and they say, with this ring, I thee wed. Now, and this is one of those everyday ones we all, we all know about. A man gives a woman a ring and says, with this ring, I thee wed. Now, what is the ring? I love asking this in premarital counseling classes. Everybody has a a lot of emotions about the ring. But what is it? It's not the marriage itself, right? It's It's a piece of metal or wood or some other substance that you can take on and off that actually on one level means nothing. It's nothing. It's not the marriage. It's absurd. But what do we think of a man who's going into a bar and takes it off and puts it in his pocket? Oh, oh, now actually it means a great deal. And this is the kind of everyday stuff where we're interacting in God's world the way he made it, that we don't actually think very deeply about or understand what's happening. We don't understand what's happening. What is the ring? What does it signify? Why is it that we can have such an emotional response to something that is just, it's, it itself is not the marriage? Now, human reason, human thinking, human understanding is based on metaphor. What is the universe itself? What are the cosmos? but a poetic statement. That was, see, a little emphasis there for you. You go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and this is what we hear. This is what we read. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. He spoke light into existence. The light that you see are the words of God. 
Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 says, for, this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been seen. So when I look at light, what do I see? When I look at mountains, what do I see? When I look at trees, what do I see? When I look at water, what, what is it? Right? When we use it for baptism, and you want to understand what's going on in baptism, think about what water actually is, what it actually does. So when we look into the world, which are the words of God, what are they? They're symbols for himself. He's, he's created a cosmos in which what you see all around you are metaphors. It's a, it's a cosmos of metaphors. The universe in its entirety is a metaphor, a grand poetic statement. This is what God is like. Everything that is is a spoken word, a metaphor representing him full of logic and poetics. Now listen to this from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the, through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. There is order to what the sun is doing. It has a pattern. It runs a course. Right? Imagine if the sun was like, you know what? I'm kind of tired of this path. I'm going to head out towards Milky Way. And all of us shrivel up and die. Right? The earth just implodes. Now, think about the fact that the sun is saying, God says the sun, and, and this is what I love about this kind of psalm. Imagine the sun standing there, kind of like Greek mythology. And he says to the sun, hey, sun, I want you to run this course. I just want you to run laps, okay? Run laps around the earth. And the sun is like, yeah, 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 cool, cool. And he gets up out of his tent every morning like a bridegroom, like a man who's, who's full of passion and vigor. And he runs his course with joy. Now, our, that, that's a lesson in obedience, now, given the variety of things, right, we don't just have to run. Imagine God comes to you and he says, hey, listen, what I want you to do is run up and down the street. And I'm not going to tell you when I'm going to stop you. I'm just going to, that's what I want you to do. How many of us would be like, yeah, like a bridegroom, running it with joy? And, and so you see, in something like the creation of the sun, you, you, you're taught a lesson about the Ten Commandments. You're taught a lesson about Christian obedience. You're taught a lesson about what pleases the Lord. And what pleases the Lord is order. What pleases the Lord is joy. What pleases the Lord is obedience. And so this world that you're looking at is full of order, and it's full of symbolism. He says, like a bridegroom, like a strong man. Right? This is like that. That's how God is explaining the world because that's how you're going to understand it. You're not going to understand it any other way. The son loves his job. He does it with passion and intensity. And it is a lesson in a, to us, not only in how we are supposed to live our lives, but the God who, it's a lesson about the God whom we serve. Now, the New Testament helps us understand that the unity and diversity of the created order is about one thing and one thing only. John Calvin said this, we cannot gaze upon this beautiful masterpiece of the world in all its length and breadth without being completely dazzled, as it were, by an endless flood of light. 
I'm going to read it again, right? This is where Calvin's like, forget theology. I'm, I'm going to do poetry now. We cannot gaze upon this beautiful masterpiece of the world in all its length and breadth without being completely dazzled, as it were, by an endless flood of light. Now, what he's doing is paraphrasing two verses. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Couple that with John eighteen twelve. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He's the, he is what holds it all together. He is what we see when we look at it, and he, it is an endless flood of light. Now, this seems pretty meta, doesn't it? What, what am I talking about at this point? What I'm talking about, right, how often have you sat down and you have to tell your wife about a difficult decision you're going to make, and you have no idea what to say? Your kids are so excited about something that they think is going to happen. This happens to me all the time. The, the way they get worked up about something I've never even remotely said is going to happen. They get all excited. And you've got to sit down with them and talk to them about the fact that the only reason they're disappointed right now is because they got themselves all revved up and excited all by themselves. I had, I had nothing to do with what's going on with you right now. But you want to talk to them about that. And so how do you, right? how do you sit down? How do you talk to them? How do you talk to friends? How do you talk to unbelievers about the faith? Well, what you have all around you all the time is the way that God is talking to you. And the way he's talking to you is a lesson in how to talk. It's a lesson in how to talk. If you are going to use the Bible to reprove and to teach and to correct and to train, you must be a poet, a seer. The one who perceives the interconnectedness between apparently unrelated things. Now, did you know that that was your responsibility? To be poets? <laughs> to be seers? This is an example of, of, of where we, we have lost something in the modern Christian church. Right? How, how often Have you ever been there and you say you have a sore back? Okay, or you've gotten bad news? And the thing that your friend does is quote scripture to you. Now, I don't know about you, but why is that so frustrating to me? Well, you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Okay, thanks. Now, why is it at times the word of God straight up, right, unfiltered, is not nearly as comforting as it maybe should be? Your responsibility is to communicate, and we don't know how to communicate. And my point today is that the, the Lord God is teaching us through his word and through the natural order how to communicate effectively. And how you communicate effectively is logic and poetics. You need to see the interconnectedness. What does your, your spouse's sin, your spouse's pain, your, 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 your friend's frustrations, your friend's disappointments, what does your friend's struggles have to do with the word of God? What's the, how are they connected? Right? When you look out on the world, do you ever think, you know, I'm going to encourage my sons to continue going in the right way, like doing this mundane job. You know what, kids? Look up at the sun. Do you know that the sun was given one path to run 
continuously forever, and he does it with joy, he does it with strength, he does it with passion. That is what it means in Deuteronomy to talk about these things and to have the word of God upon your lips when you come in and go out, when you stand up, when you sit down. And, and, and what we try to do is communicate in our own strength. We try to communicate with our own understanding, opposed to putting on the mind of God. And the mind of God is one that is full of poetics. Interpreting and communicating the truth of the Bible, a collection of many genres and styles and vocabularies within an agrarian culture spanning thousands of years, is a task of seers, not merely academics. Communicating biblical truth in a fresh and compelling and beautiful way is the task of poets, not mere theologians. What does circumcision have to do with baptism? What's the connection? How are they different? How are they similar? What does that have to do with you and your children? What does Paul mean when he tells us to put on a martyred Jewish carpenter from the first century? How put, put on Jesus, a martyred Jewish carpenter from the first century? Like make a jacket out of him? Like I'm not exactly sure what you mean. But what does that have to do with how you vote? What does that have to do with you making choices about what you eat and don't eat? This is the job of poets, right? Not merely academics, not merely theologians. Part of what's happened to us is we've gotten extraordinarily lazy in our own lives, and we leave things like the scriptures to the professionals, opposed to just reading them at face value, right? What, what does the text say? Just what does it say? Open up Psalm 19. Just what does it say? Do you need an academic? Do you need a theologian? Or has God equipped you with the ability to understand what it actually is saying and how to communicate it to those who need, it hurt, need to hear it? A striking metaphor does not tie two isolated things together, but rather reveals a connection that exists between them already, as they are spoken by God. Mount Rainier and God's majesty. White wool and God's purity. Okay, we're not just making this stuff up. There's a reason that God uses these metaphors. What is white, pure, perfect wool? What, what is it? Where did it come from? How is it used in this world? Why is that used as a symbol of God's purity? A pitcher of water and the cleansing internal efficacy of baptism. How does the, what the Spirit does inside my heart that no one can see, what does that have to do with a pitcher of water that's dumped on my head? What's the connection between these things? The poet first sees and then declares, David is a lesser Jesus, Jesus is the light of the world, manna is a type of Jesus. The metaphor must relate the way that God intends it to. And we are surrounded by metaphors. Did you know that on this table before us is a metaphor? But this is a living metaphor. There's a difference. This one actually functionally accomplishes something. Right? That, that, what is in that cup there? Kirkland Signature Red Blend. But it's the blood of Christ. Now, we, we, we just get used to saying things like this. But I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. How is a cup of Kirkland's signature red blend, the blood of the living God who is seated at the right hand of the Lord in heaven? What is the connection? How about this statement? A man is the head of his wife, or Jesus is the head of the church. How are these statements similar, and how are they different? What do they mean? How is a man a head? Think how absurd the statement is, right? This is what I... I, I, I most of you know, I was converted at 25, and, and Christianese is something that I've not gotten used to, okay? 
it, it, this, this way that in which we talk about things. Well, the man is the head of the wife. Okay, well, what is that? What, how is a man a head? How does that work? How is a cup of Kirkland signature? We, we get used to saying these things, and we don't actually think about what they really mean. We don't really think about what it's teaching us about the God of this world, the world in which we live, and how we're supposed to communicate the, the truth of the Bible. The man, a man is the head of his wife is an absurd statement on the surface. But you've got to think about it. How is a man a head? What is a head? What is the function of a head? Now, C.S. Lewis is very helpful here. He pointed out that there are three basic ways of using language. The first is the ordinary. Here we go. This is what a child would say. It's very cold outside. There's the scientific. Currently, it's 17 degrees. And then there is the poetic way of describing things, of using language. And this is from Keats, his famous and wonderful poem, The Eve of St. Agnes. He said, Ah, a bitter chill it was. The owl for all his feathers was a cold. The hare limped trembling through the frozen grass, and silent was the flock in woolly fold. Numb were the beadsman's fingers. Now that, you can feel it, can't you? Right? Most of us would say what? what? Which one of these three is the most accurate description of how cold it actually is outside? Well, most of us would be like, well, we're good moderns. We'd be like, well, 17 degrees, that's the most accurate. But I have a question for you. I love this. What is a degree? What is it? It's a very abstract concept. So why do we think an abstract concept is more accurate than my snot is frozen? <laughs> right? I mean, if somebody asks me how cold it is, the way I think about the world, I'd be like, well, my snot isn't quite frozen yet, but it's, it's about to be, right? <laughs> and this is why I find myself so out of place amongst moderns sometimes. Because somebody says 17 degrees, and ever since I was a small child, I was like, could someone please tell me what that is? Okay, and, and, and it went from 53 to 57, and I don't feel any different. So what does that even mean that you're telling me? And we get used to talking like modern people who don't really understand the world that we live in. The poetic paradigm uses qualification, it uses concrete images, it uses imprecision, imprecision to say that God is an omnipotent, immutable spirit. Now that is accurate. That's a perfectly theologically accurate statement. It's quantifiable, it's abstract, and it's accurate. God is an omnipotent, immutable spirit. But to say that God is a rock is actually less precise but is a concrete image that you can communicate to a child. If you walk up to a child and you say, don't worry, your God is an, an omnipotent, immutable spirit, and the child says, oh, yay, I have nothing to worry about. No, you walk up to a child and you say, listen, God is a rock that you're standing on. Oh, that's kind of an unusual, what do you mean, Dad? So you go out to the yard and you find a big rock and you stand on it, and you say, see how much higher you are from every, every right? You're on this big, solid, firm thing that you're not going to fall off. Is God a rock? This is, this is, we, we live in, in a world where everyone is like, well, that's not precisely true. What you just said is not true. God is not a rock. That's a lie. And yet, that's what he says of himself. Why? Because he's, he's communicating something to us that is actually less precise in order for us to better understand something that we can't really understand. Immutable? Anybody? Anybody want to give a shot at immutable? Now, how many of you can define what a rock is? Okay. Instead of trying to state what something in its essence is, that's the modern way of doing it, it takes too long, it's not clear, say what it is like and what it is not like. 
Okay, we, we are moderns. We want to know, like, give me its absolute, complete definition. Now, let me ask you guys a question. What is a chair? What's a chair? Now, I ask this question all the time. This is a philosophy question. This is a communication question. This is one of my favorite questions. Because how many of us just know a chair when we see a chair? We just know it, right? That's a chair and that's not a chair. <laughs> but tell me, what is a chair? This is modern people. We love it. We're like, okay, well, it's, it, it has four legs and you sit on it. Oh, like a horse. Okay, no, no, no. Okay, no, it has four legs and you sit on it and it's made out of wood. Okay, like a stool. No, 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 no. That's not what I mean. No, no, no. Okay, it's made out of metal and it, it has cushions. You're like, hmm, like a car seat like in a car, right? Like a bench seat in a truck. Is that what you mean? And yet, we think that we're going to, <laughs> we're going to turn to the Bible and we're going to be able to explain that Jesus, his blood, is a fountain of life. Okay, you can't tell me what a chair is. You can't define a chair. Right? I, I've done it. I've sat there for 25 minutes with a whiteboard and the smartest kids that you can find, and all we're doing is going, we're adding and 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 adding to the definition until it doesn't make any sense. But yet you walk up and you're like, oh, that's a chair. Right? We, we, we have a hard time understanding even simple things in this world. Okay? And, and then you're going you know, to understand what an immutable God is when you can't even define a chair. <laughs> this is the absurdity of modern man. If we can't so easily define something as simple as a chair, how do you communicate that the loaf of bread sitting here at the table is the body of Christ? Or that the people eating the loaf are also the body of Christ. Wait, wait, what? Which one is it? John, famously, in the, the prologue of his gospel, said that Jesus tabernacled amongst us. Now, why does John say tabernacled? And that's a very strange thing to say. If we do a word search and we read all the passages about the tabernacle, is that going to explain to us what he meant? If I just go in the old, and be like, oh, he tabernacled amongst us. Jesus is like a tent. Okay, cool. So you go back and you read all the passages about the tabernacle, and you're like, oh, now I understand Jesus. No, that's not how it, <laughs> You're like, I don't understand what's going on. This is where poetics come in. Comparison, what is it like, what is it not like? How is a tent like and not like a man? How is the tabernacle like and not like a normal tent? The tabernacle was God's throne room in the center of Israel's camp. Oh, now we're getting somewhere. We know that God arranged the tribes of Israel around the tabernacle. Did you know that it makes a giant cross? Like if you could see it from heaven, it's actually there God is in the middle and the way that they're actually shaped around the... Right, but you've got to get into the word of God. You've got to start lifting things out. And then you're like, okay, now I'm starting to understand a little bit about what it means that Jesus tabernacled amongst us. We know that the interior decoration of the tabernacle was designed like the Garden of Eden, Eden being the location where God walked with unfallen man in the cool of the day. Oh, hmm. We know that not everyone was allowed into the tabernacle, but Jesus speaks and touches with lepers and Gentiles and even women. How is he like and not like the tabernacle? What does that actually help us understand about him and his presence amongst the apostles? John wants us to understand that having Jesus in our midst is like having the tabernacle in our midst, but you have to actually sit down and do some work to figure it out. It's not something where you just go and you read, oh, I read Exodus, now I understand it completely. 
Jesus never defines himself the way of the council of Chalcedon does. Now, this is, I love this. This is where, this is great theology, by the way. But Jesus never talks like this. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annihilated by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person in subsistence. Now, get down on your knees and pray to that God. Do it. Can you even imagine what he looks like? Now, do we need that definition? Actually, yes. It's a very helpful definition. But, that's not, but how, do you get to, how do you convince someone standing on the street to pray to that? Jesus does what, right? He comes and he says what? I'm a gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the light of the world. I am the vine. Jesus himself wants us to understand who he is, so he says, I am the bread of life. Oh, so Jesus sustains us and nourishes us and fills us and satisfies us and strengthens us and feeds us, just like bread does. Now, you can imagine that God, can't you? Now, if you were going to sit down and explain to an unbeliever or your child, what are you going to do? The definition of Chalcedon? Or you're going to say, listen, he's like this loaf of bread. And you get out a loaf of bread, and you talk about what bread is and how it functions in the world and how it's always functioned in the world. And you're like, now, our God is like that. But that's not precise. That's not very academic. That's not very scholarly. And so we Reformed types especially really run into a lot of difficulty here simply explaining in simple terms who the God is that we serve, right? Do you want to go out, grab a loaf of bread and go, go out on the street and do some street preaching with that? Somebody at work, right? And they're like, can you explain to me the hope that resides within you? And, and how often do we feel like we've got to get really academic? We've got to get really precise. We don't, we don't want them to think God is like Allah, but no, what would the Lord Jesus do? He would say, well, see this gate? in my Let's go out of my front yard and look at this gate. Now, can you explain how Jesus is the Lord of the universe using a gate? Jesus used concrete images that communicate something about him relationally that grips the imagination. Like teaching a child math, he uses concrete images to explain complex, abstract ideas. You never sit down with a child, right, when they're first learning their numbers. You don't just start with the number two. They have no idea what you're talking about. No, you get two apples, and you're like, one apple, two apples. And now, using concrete things, they're beginning to understand an abstract idea like two. And that's what Jesus does. Well, I'm like a gate. Okay, well, let's explain that. Then you explain that, and you find out there's far more complex ideas behind it. But he uses something concrete. Communicating truth is not merely about truth. It must be truth that grips the imagination. Now, what I want to do is start slowly going towards our actual text. This is all introductory, my friends. I hope you brought lunch. I'm kidding. Now, how many of you guys know Stephen's famous sermon from Acts chapter 7? Okay? They come, and, and, and Stephen's there, and he's going to preach a sermon, and he preaches this beautiful sermon. And, and what he does is he goes back through the history of Israel. And he starts with all the things that these Jews know a lot about. Abraham and the patriarchs and Moses and Solomon and the temple. Then Stephen moves to a list of examples of Israel's rejections of God's prophets and thus God himself. So he's, he's going through this history and all along the Jews are like, yeah, yeah, okay, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I get you, I get you. Yep, I remember that. Mm-hmm. And then Stephen concludes with a comparison. 
Acts chapter 7, verse 51 to 53. You're, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So he goes, he gives them this whole list of things they know. And in the end, he says, oh, by the way, uh, yeah, you're just like your fathers who murdered the prophets. So what they thought is they were like the prophets. They, they're self-deceived. They don't understand themselves. They think they are like the prophets. And we're murdered by the Romans, and we're persecuted by the Romans. And what Stephen comes and does is like, no, no, remember this history. Yeah, but yeah, you got yourself wrong in the story. You're the one killing the prophets because you killed Jesus. And, and there's this self-revelation that what happens? Well, then they murder him. Okay, so be careful with this kind of thing. We're going to look at Nathan. Nathan's a little less direct. But this is what good preaching does, right? If they don't, right? I mean, if, if somebody doesn't want to stab you at the end, you didn't do a good job, frankly. So he works from knowns to unknowns. What they don't know is themselves. And he uses this huge metaphor of history in order to get them to see who they are in the story. Simplicity in communication consists of concrete images, direct comparisons that move from knowns to unknowns to bring insight made up of simple but effective word choices. Simplicity is key. You are a precious treasure, a diamond-studded ring upon the hand of God who is enthroned in heaven. Let 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 me tell you who you people are. You are a precious treasure, a diamond-studded ring upon the hand of God who is enthroned in heaven. Now that, we can all, that, that makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside, right? That's more comforting than saying you are the beneficiaries of a suzerain treaty with the triune God. Everyone's like, oh, mm. <laughs> I want to be the ring, right? You work from knowns to unknowns. Does anyone know what a suzerain treaty is? No. But does anyone know what a diamond-studded ring is, right? The Lilia ladies, or I'm sorry, the Leslie ladies wear them all the time. If you're confused, just look at their hands. Okay, it's nice to be married to jewelers, right? That's what you are, a, a, a diamond-crusted ring on the hand of God. Metaphor and symbolism, analogy, allegory. Now, the point of all of this is, is something that Timothy Keller said. Yes, I'm quoting Timothy Keller. I have no problem with that. And I've been saying it for several years now, and, I'm, and every once in a while I just go back to some of these quotes, and I just go a little further with them. Because Timothy Keller said this, No church should expect that all of the life transformation that comes from the word of God comes strictly through preaching. I shouldn't expect to be shaped into Christ-likeness even by listening to the best sermons. I also need other Christians around me who are handling the word of truth by encouraging me, instructing me, and counseling me. And that's what Paul said. In Colossians 3, 16 to 17, let the word of Christ dwell in richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You're supposed to be declaring the truth to one another. And for types like us, types in this church, churches like ours, we tend to sit down and we do the definition of Chalcedon version of that, right? (laughs) But think about the Heidelberg Catechism. They They were poets. If you, want, if you want the theologian version, you, you look at the, the shorter catechism of Westminster. But if you want the poet's version of theology, right, something that's really going to instruct you in who you are in Christ, the Heidelberg Catechism is a good example. How do you rebuke a drunkard? 
How do you encourage a woman who wants to respect her husband in greater obedience and joy in the Lord and she doesn't know how? How do you do it? Oh, well, I sure hope that Mike preaches about that someday soon. Now, I, I love everybody, but I've recently heard that statement several times. Oh, maybe you should preach a sermon on that. And I was standing there, and I thought, maybe you should go meet with the person. And what happens is you, you, you put everything on Sunday morning. We, get, we try to get so much out of Sunday morning that the rest of the week we wonder why we're hungry. We wonder, we wonder why the people around us are not as well-fed as they should be. But we ought to be instructing one another in the word of God. We ought to have a prophetic voice where we're speaking into the circumstances of one another's lives using the word of God in a way that grips the imagination, that encourages them to change. We need good communicators, those who can see the interconnectedness of things because we are self-deceived and often we cannot see ourselves. Self-deception is the state of individuals who do not face up to their own sin or the spiritual state with any real, realism. And this, this is what I'm saying. I do not fault anyone for self-deception. I would never sit down with someone and be like, well, you're, you're clearly self-deceived, and how dare you? It, because what is the very nature of self-deception? It's something that you don't know about yourself. You don't know. I, I don't know. Right? I mean, how, this is why counseling, this is, this is how it works. You sit down with someone, and they tell you all the, thing, all the things. And you immediately are like, oh, we well, should stop doing that, and you should start doing that. Okay? Then I go home to my wife after a counseling meeting, and I sit down, and I'm like, I have no idea how to do, to do about this. But then you tell someone else, and they're like, oh, well, don't do that, do this. <laughs> right? That's how like, our, our world works. I can see your life more clearly than you can because I'm on the outside on one level. You can see mine more clearly because you're on the outside. Self-deception grips us. I can tell you all kinds of things for advice, and I can hardly advise myself at times. Now, and and if you you notice in your life, it's the same thing. You see other people, and you're like, oh, that person should totally stop doing that. Or if they only did this, they'd be fine. I've quoted it before. Pastor Sumner said, we are not who we think we are, and it's worse than we realize. Now, I want to just put a little meat behind that quote. It's a pretty sweet quote, by the way. Okay, we are not who we think we are, and it is worse than we realize. But Proverbs 30, verse 12 says, There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are people who are like, yeah, I'm fine, I'm good. You ask them, oh, I'm good, I'm good. But they're walking around, they don't know, they're dirty. Jesus' primary ministry was confronting the self-deception of mankind, not merely a select group of Jewish leaders. Jeremiah 17, 9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Our ways must be tested. Our hearts must be searched. The word of God is the scalpel for heart surgery. It is the light for dark places. What lies deep within must be brought to light. First, that we may see it ourselves clearly but also that in the light those sins may be exposed and dealt with. This is the thing. Like, this, we think that this is simply, what we're doing is getting insight into what this means. But revelation is a two-way street, right? This is is Calvinism 101. This both reveals you to you and reveals him to you. And, And that's how it's supposed to work. And if all you're ever doing is reading this and learning more about him and never anything about yourself, you're reading it incorrectly. This exposes you to the light so that you can see you, and then you can turn to God and be like, okay, all right, look, what, look at that. 
I didn't know that was going on. Please forgive me for that. And one of the ways that you jump a step is by having other people tell you what you cannot see yourself. Right? And <laughs> now we all have been around a block. You walk up to someone, you're like, hey, listen, I've been really concerned about you for a while. You're a liar. Okay, well, you never saw that person again. And you wouldn't be wrong. Right? They wouldn't be wrong for just walking away from you at that point. Because how effective is that kind of communication? You're, you're a very angry person, and I don't like you. What do I do with that? Right? Is that how we communicate with one another? Is that how God communicates with us? We live in a Disney princess culture where we have been groomed to follow our own hearts. But our hearts are liars. Our hearts are liars who deceive us. And so what must, what must happen is we must be awoken from this sleep by, of self-deception by a prince. Right? We're like Sleeping Beauty. We're like the Disney princesses. Well, I followed my heart, and here I am, dead asleep. And if there would only be a prince that would come and awaken me to my self-deception. Now turn with me to 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 12. And, and, and hopefully now everyone hears this story differently. Everyone hears this, and, and, and what comes to mind is someone that you need to talk to like this. Maybe yourself. Maybe your spouse. Maybe your children. Maybe a friend. Maybe they're sitting in this room with you. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor, The rich man had very many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing but one little hue lamb. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come in. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. Oh. Oh. Now, isn't that subtle, what Nathan has done? Isn't that effective? And is the story like? And this is what I love about scholars, because now all these scholars will write all these books about whether the story Nathan told is actually true. They're like, oh, we got to find out if he's actually just making this story up, or if this is actually a historical story. And I'm sitting there reading like, if you could possibly waste time, you've discovered how, right? If there is a way to waste time, you, amen, you found it. Who cares if it's true? He comes and tells him a story. And, 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 and he engages David's imagination. He engages David's judgment because he has a conscience given by God. He engages it in a way that gets David to be clearly, oh, yeah, I see exactly what that person did was wicked. And then he turns the table and he's like, well, you know, this story is about you. And then David is cut to the heart. Then all of the, he's been going down this path and he suddenly comes up short and stops. Why? Because of poetics. Why? Because somebody loved him enough to address this issue with him and wasn't, uh, didn't use a two-by-four. What he did was he used a ladder. Right? He, he, he used the wood to cl- so that he could get away from himself, up far enough away from himself to see himself. 
And that's what we're doing when we're communicating biblical truth. Now, I'm just going to point out a number of things here because we're running out of time fast. Okay? It says at the very beginning here that, Na- that the Lord sent Nathan. And through this whole passage, what do we have? Messengers. David sends messengers. Joab sends messengers. There's messengers going here, messengers going from Bathsheba, messengers, messengers, messengers. Well, finally, the Lord sends his messenger. And he's going to set all the other messengers straight. And that's what it means in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You are all of you, Nathans, sent to give the true message. So there are people who have heard from messengers from Allah, and there are people who have heard from messengers of Mormonism, and there are people who have heard from the messengers of Satan in their own pain and suffering. And what you are is you're Nathan, you're sent to set the record straight, to undo all the false and negative and terrible things that the other messengers have, have been telling them. Now, what he does is it's a parable that he uses here, and parables are very important. Jesus' teaching was full of parables, poetic utterances meant to give insight to the self-deceived. Matthew 13, 13 says, This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And so he comes and he says, Oh, there was a man who owns a vineyard. Oh, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Oh, there was a rich man. And everybody's listening to him, and slowly people are like, Oh, wait, he's talking about me. And we think that the parables are sort of just these like cutesy things thrown into the gospel. It's 35% of what he said. 35% of what he said was parables. Why? Because he understands how story works. He understands that he is a prophet of God. And if you want people to realize how self-deceived they are, you have to tell them stories. You have to use metaphor and poetics. Now, the parable of Nathan was set to draw attention to the rich man's abuse of position and power. This is key. It was a story of exploitation and oppression, not simple theft. The reference in verse 3 to the hue lamb in the man's bosom anticipates verse 8, where the Lord referred to Saul's wives who have been given to him to hold in his bosom. Verse 3 states that the hue lamb was like a daughter to the poor man, and the word daughter is bat, the first syllable of Bathsheba. And I like this because this is as close to Nathan Gitz as giving it away. He's like, oh, well, in his bosom was this bat. And you're like, this seems familiar to me. Bathsheba was in my bosom too. Oh, wait. No, but David is so stunted at this moment, he doesn't even realize these subtle clues. It just goes right by him. And now we have to point out the fact that the hue lamb was slaughtered, not simply stolen. Because, right, think about it. Was Bathsheba killed? Why, why is the hue lamb in the story slaughtered? Oh, oh man, this is is why I love this stuff. The hue lamb was slaughtered because what you have is a husband and wife who have been torn asunder. So long before he sticks a heart, you know, he, he uses the sword to slaughter her husband, what he actually does is tears apart this one flesh. Because when you have adultery, when you commit adultery with someone, you're tearing apart one person. Because the man and the woman have become one flesh. And you have to murder a person in order to, to have at one of them. And so there's already been a murder before he ever murders Uriah. That's why the hue lamb was slaughtered. She was separated from her husband through the, the physical act that they engaged in. Mark 10.9, what the, therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Tearing asunder is a better translation. Separating a man and wife is to literally tear them apart. Adultery is a form of murder. 
And, and we don't think about it that way because we don't think about the fact that a man and wife are, are one flesh. That's a person now. That's an entity. The two have become one, and in order to have one of them outside of the bounds of that, you've got to murder what already exists. This is why David is so angry. And this is why David sees very clearly what's to happen. And then he, he, the, the whole thing turns, and he says, no, you were this man. And then what does David do after this? I've run out of time to continue explaining this. Joel has been waiting and waiting for Psalm 51. We're not going to put it off any longer. Okay? There is this judgment that the Lord gives him. And he says, what you did in secret, I'm going to do in the open, because even when things like this, I do it in the open. You, you slept with her in secret, I'm going to now, someone's going to sleep with your wives on the rooftop. The sword that you used to kill Uriah, I'm now going to use to divide your household. And the judgment comes back on his own head, and the baby dies. And this is also something we have a difficult time understanding about sin, because though the sin is forgiven, there are all these other consequences to what has happened. And David, through this beautiful story that Nathan tells, sees himself. He is revealed to himself. It's not just simply about revealing God to people. It's about revealing people to themselves. And this is something about the poetic voice that we do not understand. The people sitting around you right now cannot see themselves clearly. Their sin is in the way. Their self-righteousness, their self-justification, their self-deception is blocking it. And what they need is someone to come along and be like, hey, you know what? I knew this guy. Or, hey, I need advice about this situation. And you explain the situation, and then the person says, well, here, this is what you do. And you say, well, that's actually for you. You're welcome. Try that one very carefully. Okay, people are discouraged. People are broken. People are hurting. People are overwhelmed by their circumstances. People don't know what to do. And what we have, have got to do is take up the word of God and, and communicate it clearly to one another the way that we're supposed to, as the body of Christ. Right? It, we, we have got to stop with all the, the deep, deep academics, all the deep philosophy. And just for a moment, explain what Jesus is like. He's like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, people. He's like... Right? He loves fish tacos. Like, this is why when I explain these things, I love concrete details. Because it makes people actually think about what you're hearing, and so that it becomes more real. And, and that's, <laughs> that's what Nathan does. He tells something that's not true in order to reveal something that's true. And we all need to go away from here thinking about how we're communicating the truth of God. And how it's best communicated. Because our children need to hear it, and our spouses need to hear it, and the world needs to hear it. And, and we talk about being a prophetic voice, and we think that just, you know, posting sweet memes on Facebook, right, or, or putting people in their place, or being unnecessarily aggressive and rude. <laughs> but what it actually means is sitting down sometimes and telling stories and parables to one another that we might actually not just have the Lord God revealed to us, but ourselves revealed to us. And, and that is what I want you guys to go from here and do. That, that is what you not only are equipped to do, but what you're called to do. You are to go, therefore, and make... Disciples of the nations. And if you want to communicate the, the God you serve clearly, you, you've got to think about it in less academic, less philosophical, and less theological terms, frankly. And that's what your family needs. That's what this world needs. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for Nathan and his ministry to David. We pray, Lord God, that as we go from here, that we would, um, with simplicity, Lord, and, and with uh, joy and with passion, that we would not only read the word of God, we would see you, Lord, in the created order. We would contemplate who you are and, and 
the things that you have made, that we would come to understand you better. Lord, and that when we explain these things to one another, encouraging one another and rebuking one another, that we would do so with simplicity and with clarity, uh, just as the Word of God does. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.